Good morning, everybody. This is Alexander A. Manzoni with episode 45 of Manzoni in the Morning. Today, I'll be joined once again, special guest, poet Dennis Held. How are you doing this morning, Dennis? Funny you should ask. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are oh. you doing? Very anxious, but, uh, you know, that's mostly has to do with the fact that my anxiety and my excitement feel exactly the same. So I'm excited and anxious. That could be called balance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, with, the, with everything that's going to happen tomorrow with the inauguration, I think most of America is biting their fingernails in anticipation of seeing whatever's going to happen. I'm so, not. Oh, because <laughs> you know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. I've been 100% accurate since before the election about what's going to happen. <laughs> That's on because January you're a time traveler. 6th, I've been 100%. Uh, everything that Trump has done, I've been 100%. And I know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that is going to be the peaceful transference of power from one president to another. Thank Jesus. And I wrote a poem to uh, commemorate this day. One day left, one day left of this presidency, four years of poop. <laughs> All right, let's get this started. This is called One Day Left. Only one day left until it's over. What is it, do you ask? This presidency. Four years of anguish. Day-to-day -day misery writ large, the quantity of which depends on how many of those white people boxes you have checked off on your registration form. Not white enough? Too bad. Too black? Too Hispanic? Too gay? Too fucking bad. Too poor? And not lower class racist West Virginia poor. But don't worry. My fellow humans, we shan't have much longer to endure this unconscionable mongrel man's tirades, his world-chattering schemes, his lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. That is because it's over. Wednesday, 11.30 Eastern Time. And that's AM. Biden and Harris are getting sworn in, whether you're rebel, terrorist, goons like it or not. You want a war, you've got it. Your cult brought the bombs and you brought the hate. You brought Q into the Capitol building. Q was with you when you smeared feces on the walls. He helped provide the waste. And what a waste these so-called freedom fighters are. And that's that poem. I get very fired up about this stuff, and I can't wait to be fired up about not being uh, thinking about politics very much in the next four years. Although, famous last words, you know. Either way, we're going to continue onward. We're going to keep living our lives, and we're going to try to find joy in this existence of ours. And I know it's hard to find joy when the, uh, the world around you kind of like makes you think that if you're not a celebrity, if you're not some young kid that is like five years old, is a piano uh, prodigy on America's Got Talent, you missed the boat. You missed the boat, son. And that's it. You got no options left. And I'm here to tell you that there are options. You got to dive into yourself and find what makes you happy and what 
brings you joy, and it helps a lot if that thing That's is green. Oh, thank you. Especially in difficult times. Um, sometimes we do have to look for things that bring us joy in our lives. And it, uh, you know, we forget sometimes that there's two elements to an experience. And that experience uh, includes what happens to us. More important than that is how we respond to it. Okay? Some people came through the Holocaust, the most awful period in American history. Some people came through that and asked a very legitimate question. How dare we make art in the face of this uh, view of humanity? How dare we uh, pretend that this is important? Well, other people came through that exact same experience and uh, were filled with the joy of daily living because they recognize that we need to continue that which is most human in us, that which separates us from the other animal species. And that is a, an experience of joy, I think, uh, certainly that is available to us. So something happens to us and then there's how we respond to us. I think a lot of people have bailed I think there's a lot of really uh, low-grade response to the pandemic, frankly. I'm sitting out here. I got cancer, right? I'm out here with my friend Alex. We're going out. Buy yourself a damn propane heater, right? <laughs> Costs 120 bucks. You can sit in your garage and be comfortable. I have news for America. We didn't used to only go inside when it was 20 degrees. There's, you know, half of America or more used to work outdoors during the winter, right? I grew up in Wisconsin. I know this to be true. Uh, and at least part of your workday would have been spent outdoors. So, you know, folks, buck up a little bit here. Uh, put on an extra coat. I got an extra pair of pants on, for heaven's sakes. Get out there and continue to live your life as well as you can. You have to make adjustments, make adjustments. I've all had to make a lot of adjustments. Well, Some are doing better than others. T-shirt for heaven's sake. <laughs> well, I get real because of my thyroid disorder. I get wow. really uh, overheated when I'm doing these things. So yeah. that's why I'm like, if I start getting cold, I'll put the coat on. But for now, I'm whew, I'm hot. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, did you say you're interested in a poem? Oh, absolutely. That's what we're here for today. Let's have a poem by somebody else who's not me. Here's a poem. This is a brand new book by a writer from Leavenworth, teaches at Wenatchee Valley College. His name is Derek Sheffield. Uh, he's a great friend and a great poet. Um, one of the things that Derek has going for him is sincerity. Uh, there's so much poetry that is just ironic and crappy and just brutal, whatever, thoughtless. Um, I have to say that... Uh, Derek Sheffield's uh, poetry reminds us of the, the power and importance of human connection. Here's a poem called Bedtime Story. Derek has two daughters and he's a great dad. Bedtime Story. This from the writings uh, of the book Beowulf. 
He set the sun and the moon to be earth's lamplights, lanterns for men. Hinged to the glowing pin of a porch light, a blurring twister of moth wings beyond the window draws the silhouettes of two bath-scented sisters. At a word from their father, they patter up the stairs, nude as moon babies, and come floating down in brightly colored nightgowns. Another word, and they flit away and back to breathe whiffs of toothpaste and plead for him to let them be a little longer. He could let Dawn find them just as he is, weary and sprawled and watching as they stand on their toes to follow the same pallid and whirling blaze that caught him long ago, a lamp by a mountain lake, his father, and the laps of dark water, and yes, the skittery wings on their fingers at the glass, little taps, a while longer. That's a poem oh, wow. called Bedtime Story by Derek Sheffield. Wow. I can't I can't wait till I have kids so I can write poetry about them like that. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're uh, they're interested in it too. You know, I want to read one more poem, one of my own. Okay. And uh, then I want to finish the conversation we started last time about what makes a sonnet a sonnet. Ooh, awesome. And, yeah. So uh, here's a here's a poem called Wild Asparagus. On Saturdays, you didn't have to remember your locker combination, your class schedule or the room numbers. Didn't have to recall dre getting dressed with a hard knot of dread. You only had to remember where the patches were last spring along Lisbon Road and then follow the railroad tracks and remember to let a few go to seed. You had to remember where the poison ivy grew and forget about your dad with a goose egg over his eye, his wallet gone, the house payment forgotten. You left those stalks to help you remember where the green shoots rise every single year. Oh, wow. That's wild asparagus. It's, uh, although it may not seem like it, it's a, it's a poem of hope, you know, that uh, I grew up in a horrible horrible dysfunctional family alcoholic dad physically sexually abusive and i remember one time in particular he came home after having drunk all night and he somebody had knocked him on the head and stolen his wallet and that meant a month's worth of pay and uh, i'm telling you you know that meant something in our lives i remember standing in front of the stove an electric stove Eight kids huddled around the electric stove because the gas had been turned off. You know. Oh my God! Uh, it was not a great way to grow up. On the other hand, I have to say maybe uh, some of those kinds of deprivations also built the, the resiliencies that I have. I'd say the same is true. In your life. Oh yeah, we went a long time without electric, <laughs> and we ran out of gas. Electric. We were we were living with a, a generator for a while. It was rough, yeah. and then I uh, stole electric. I figured out how to to, to do uh, the box, and then the electric company caught us, Ooh. and uh, they just uh, 
I think it's because of our white privilege, white privilege, that they uh, didn't do anything about it. You know, because I heard that you could get a pretty big fine from doing that. Yeah. So how old were you when you rehooked up your electricity? Oh, uh, I think I was like 26, 27. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you were an adult. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I was a spoiled, you know, kind of middle, upper middle class kind of kid. I mean, the people in our town considered us rich because my dad owned a, a farm. And uh, we just got poorer and poorer the older we got. And, uh, well, you know what? It happened kind of at the right time because it was like my teenage years where I was going into a, a, a ritzy Catholic school and... In, I don't know, I could have become more like them and instead I kind of went the other way which is good because I would have probably ended up more like uh, Donald Trump's kids or some shit and, uh, There's it was very, rough. very little chance of that happening <laughs> Well good, I'm glad you extracted yourself Oh yeah. You know, however you did. I now live in life. It's like amazing. I would. I, it's like I'm living in a rich life, and I'm just living kind of like a normal life, <laughs> in just a, a pretty decent house. You know, it's nothing too crazy. But you know what? I'm very thankful. Very thankful. Thank you. Thank you, God. Well, I, you know, I was interested in what you said to start today, hmm? um, and that uh, we we don't need to be that kid on American Idol. We don't need to be that star quarterback. Those uh, people are chosen specifically uh, and held up as exemplars as though that were something we could aspire to. Mm. Fact is, there's very little chance of any of that ever happening. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's one element of America's um, obsession with celebrity. But it, it's deeper than that, and it has to do with consumerism. You know, there is no reason for us to buy all of this crap we buy. None whatsoever. We've been convinced deep down in our bones from the day we were born that our happiness depends on owning things. And that's simply not true. We know it's not true. And yet, and yet, we pretend it is. And we continue to shop and buy uh, things. I don't know. Uh, that, I think, is one of the, the things that could be... Uh, changed in uh, in capitalism in American society. Capitalism itself is going to have to completely change for that to happen. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to get back a little bit to you know one way we can break away from some of those um, ideas that are made for us is to look back in time through history and find some of those lasting values that have made humans humans. You know. We are not the same as a deer, as a slug. We are at the very least able to see into the future and perhaps change our own futures, you know. Mm. Um, there we were crawling along on all fours with this spinal cord and then all of a sudden this lump formed on top and here we got this brain that is self-conscious. Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> um, through interacting with the environment, uh, making small neural changes, we uh, got to this point where we should be able to do better, um, but we've, we've abdicated a lot of our, uh, our reasons for being human, our chances to be human. So we can get back to those though. Um, some of those things that make us the most human are music, our mm -hmm. dance, our literature, especially in my case. Um, you know, I was saved. I was a, 
a 25-year-old guy who had dropped out of high school, walked into a two-year college, and was blown away by poetry. I mean, absolutely had no idea that contemporary Americans were writing poetry, um, and and certainly not writing, you know, in contemporary American language, uh, and certainly not writing in traditional forms. And uh, one of the more traditional forms is the sonnet. We uh, kind of ended last time on uh, a definition of one of the components of a sonnet. Uh, people, a lot of people have heard the words uh, iambic pentameter. You, you've heard that, haven't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe don't know quite what that means. And we described last time, iambic is actually from the Greek for the words to limp. So it's ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. It's like somebody who's dragging a foot along. And... Uh, pentameter, penta means five, like pentagon, meter, pentameter means five beats, five accents. So every line of a sonnet, a traditional sonnet written in the Shakespearean or Petrarchan form has, has ten syllables with five beats. So there's two main kinds of sonnet. The one we're most familiar with is the Shakespearean or Elizabethan sonnet. And that often is represented with a quatrain. That's four lines, quattro, right? Quatrain, 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 and then two lines to wrap things up at the end. Um, so it's a 14-line poem built on a framework of 10-syllable lines. The strictest interpretation of the sonnet would have you make a turn, a revelation, a new understanding at each of those four um, quatrains, and then something at the very end that might summarize, wrap up, or maybe even undo everything that has come before. So you might have, uh, you might think of this in terms of uh, architecture. So you'd have a four blocks of four, and then a block of two. There's obviously some uh, integrity to that form, especially if those are made of ten-syllable lines. And especially, and this is the key component to a traditional sonnet, each of those lines has a rhyming word on the end of it. Oh. Often those will be A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. So, blue, da-da-da, Jones, da-da-da, true, da-da-da, bones so that the rhymes are a little bit uh, less obvious. So that's a basic structure of a Shakespearean sonnet. A Petrarchan sonnet, there was a, a great Italian writer, Petrarch, who wrote a sonnet form that was eight lines and then six lines. Slightly different form um, with slightly different mechanical requirements. There's an odd thing that happens in human experience. It just seems to fit itself into those 14-line boxes, and I started 20 years ago dissolving some of those boxes. In other words, may not worrying so much about whether the end word rhymes. Hmm. In fact, in the initial draft of the poem, usually those words will rhyme, they'll be very rigorous, be 10 syllables on line, that kind of thing. When I come back to the poem, and I make sure it's at least a week before I come back to an initial draft, I'll come back and look at it again and see what the poem wants to say, not what I want the poem to say. 
That's a critical distinction in adding writing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so if I can listen better to that piece of writing, I'm likely to get a, a piece of writing that has more going on. So then I'll just loosen things up. There are at least 80% of the poems in this book, uh, not me exactly, my most recent book, they're in that sonnet or sonnet-like form. You call it a ballpark sonnet. That's what I like to call it. Ah, oh, very nice. Yeah. Wow. So this is very that's informative. That's a, you know, and I really recommend anyone who's going to enter any art form, if you're a musician, you're not going to pick up a trumpet and expect to start playing it accurately. If you're a golfer, not to mention any particular golfer, <laughs> If you're a golfer and you get out there, you don't expect to hit all in one. So you should not expect the first time out that uh, your every effort at writing is going to be a genius. You know, you're going to have to work at these things. And one way to help yourself is to return to traditional forms. Hmm. Look at what other people have written. Look at a Shakespearean sonnet. Yeah, it's a different kind of language. It'll take you a while to kind of slide into it, but... I'm telling you, if you uh, give it an effort, an honest effort, you'll start reading Shakespeare without any more effort than you would read the daily newspaper. It begins to come to you. And then my recommendation, hey, write your own. Write something out of your contemporary life in whatever form, but try and conform it to something that has come before and then see how it works and see how that feels for you. My guess is you're going to improve as a writer. I know you're going to improve as a writer. Wow. That's it for you, uh, Alexander. That's great. Me, me, I want you to have a nice sonnet on here. Okay, well, I'm going to have to write one. <laughs> uh, well, if you need any help you need, you call me if you want. Well, thank you. That's great. Yes, I know you're going to tell me how it is. And, yeah. This is the most informative uh, my podcast has ever been, honestly, about writing. I usually kind of, I've always wanted to kind of talk about writing, but I didn't have anyone to talk about it with or anything like that. So now we're getting education in here, son. All right. I'm here anytime, anytime. You hear that? Okay, we're going to go into the next poem. Ooh, this is, uh, this is called Stop the Steal. <laughs> oh, God. Stop the Steal, Civil War 2021. Hashtag Stop the Steal. Means different things depending on who you are and where your convictions lie. Republicans say Stop the Steal because they believe Biden fraudulently stole the election. He did so by having his leftist goons hack the Dominion voting machines, or something. That was how he took those Republican states, and not because the disenfranchised came out in droves. The spewed and regurgitated slander and libel was bad enough from T, from the My Pillow asshole, and others. That company, Dominion, has elected to sue. Good they should, how could they not? Democrats aren't using the hashtag quite so much, but that doesn't mean they aren't trying to stop the steal. After all, the loser president 
Putin's pet is the real thief. He wants to overturn this historic election in his favor. Because him and his people, the best people, are the only people who deserve to win so much winning. Well, welcome to Loser Town, you psychotic fanatics. Do what you told us to do four years ago. Deal with it. But that's not enough. You want to start a war, and depending on you, who you talk to, it has already begun. They've armed themselves. They're cooking bombs. They're flipping lawmakers to fight for them on the inside, knowing that their political pawns will get away with it because they always fucking do anymore. Senators, congressmen, and women hit the floor and hide at any strange and sudden sound. You're giving them symptoms of PTSD. They want Pelosi dead. <sighs> AOC, Ilhan Omar, Chuck Schumer, Stacey Abrams, Bernie Sanders, Ted Lieu, and many, many others. Ugh, God, I'm so stressed out about this stuff. But I think everything's going to work out well. I think... Um, you know, next week we're going to look back and say, well, it could have been worse. At least that's what I'm hoping anyway. Because we don't know. Today was supposed to be the first day that the Million Man March, or the Million Militia March was supposed to happen. And uh, so some people are on their way to D.C. right now to start some trouble. What are they going to do when they get there? Only time will tell. Stand outside the fence and cry like the baby's day. <laughs> Yes. They're just a bunch of bullies. Bullies are, are the worst kinds of cowards. And, you know, when they're on top, great. They're breaking the windows. They're carrying the lectern out with a big smile on their face, right? Guess what? That dude's in jail. That's <laughs> where he belongs. And tomorrow, uh, you will not see any other than... Uh, a peaceful transfer, but yeah, hell yeah, there's going to be people punching each other outside of those fences. Big effing deal. Let them punch, and then throw them in jail. Yeah. Hashtag, lock them up. Come on. <laughs> We're going to do it. So, um, last time I was here, did we do, uh, with, he wasn't impeached yet, right? Uh, no, he was on the verge. Okay, so, when it happened, I wrote a poem about it, that, uh, we're going to get into, and uh, that'll be my, my new, uh, other new poem that I wrote specifically for today. And uh, we're going to do it, and we're going to take it to the next level. This is called Impeached Twice. All right. Impeached Twice. Isn't that nice? It would be more so if they could land... A conviction. Two-thirds of the Senate need to be in agreement. But what good is that? Especially when half the Senate Republicans are T-loyalists. And the other half are undoubtedly terrified of voting against him in any capacity. So shitty it is that we've come to this point. Let us anoint our heads in oil and brace ourselves. For the traitor-in-chief has been impeached again. If only 
We could have done it right. The first time. Ugly little orange man with a bad tan and soulless surgeon chiseled pornographic wife. Get out of our sight. Never return to Washington again. Neither you or your cultist crony domestic terror warriors. Your good people wiped shit on the walls of the Capitol building. So much respect have they for the flag for this country that they couldn't even hold their bowels in when it came knocking at that derriere door. They are willing to say, death to you for burning a flag to protest war, and are also willing to say, no harm, no foul. What about healing? After walloping police officers with that very same flag, running them through with the flagpole striking them. Knocking around those liberal schmucks, they probably supported Kaepernick's take a knee. I hereby declare that the right has lost its right to call the left on this when it happens. They are slimy. They are evil, greedy, hateful, malicious. They eat shit and tell you it's delicious. Because they cannot see, they cannot hear, nor taste. Why else would you continue to support the worst presidency this country has ever known? And that's on paper now, on the record. No president's ever been impeached by the House twice. Kind of like how no president has ever been convicted of impeachment by the U.S. Senate. Will the insurrection, the breakout of Civil War II, be enough to warrant this? Seventeen Republicans need to flip. Seventeen Republicans need spines, and I shan't believe that so many of their number would flip sides simply to do the right thing when they've had four years of this insanity to do the right thing. And instead, they supported the orange tyrant and for the most part, continue to. Whether it's because they're scared of being targeted by the T-terrorists or whether they're desperate to retain the same level of power, the taste has grown beyond sour in our mouths. Let us spit up the rotten fruit and let us admit what needs to leave our systems. Let us fill the swamp with those evil souls who may fall next week on the next D.C. assault because none of those Republic rats ever hope to empty it, the swamp, in the first place. Okay, well, I'd like to finish with a, uh, a poem uh, by a friend of mine, Jan Wallace. Um, this is from the book Nothing Like the Doll We Learned On. Here, I'll hold that up for you to see the cover. Very cool sculpture on the cover there. Let's go ahead and give credit to the sculptor. Nike of Pinos, Olympia Archaeological Museum by Carol Vedado. Lovely, lovely photo of amazing sculpture. So this poem uh, is called Grave Instruction. Someone I admired, famous among poets and lovers of poetry, is buried in a fancy graveyard where our city founders rest beside the sister of the Indian chief they hoodwinked for the land. When I was in Scotland, staying at the castle, sleeping on a scratchy horsehair bed, in that ancient place meant to be a writer's retreat, but which in November it was just one long Victorian ghost story. I ate my lunch alone in the local cemetery. A grave is like a little boat that is finally run aground. 
I like to think of a cocktail party, everybody free from the body's concerns, from vanity. My earlobes are glowing as I get older, my friend complained. One fan taped the poet's own words to her stone. You have to come to the shore. There are no instructions. That's a poem by Jan Wallace from Nothing Like the Doll You Learned On. And I'd like to say thanks to Alexander for coming out and uh, taping this wonderful program. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis. It warms my heart and my soul to be a part of the Spokane poetry scene. Oh, so got a lot of learned a lot of great lessons. Now we're gonna wrap this up. I'd like you to uh, visit my new website, manzoniinthemorning.com. You can go there and you can read my short stories and poems and things of that nature. And my blog, which I will be updating regularly. So this is Alexander Manzoni with Manzoni in the Morning. Signing off. Boom. 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 Okay. Excellent. Show.